Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. Today, Dave and I are going to hit a topic that has to do with numbers. And maybe you're a little bit like me and you're not a numbers person. I get that. I prefer words. But when it comes to publishing your writing, you have to think about the numbers. Today, we're going to talk about the number of books most first-time authors sell. And those numbers, frankly, might surprise you. We also want to talk about why investing your time and money in building your platform before you publish your book is critical. Dave and I will open up about the money we've personally invested in building our platforms and why it was worth it. Just a heads up, this will be a frank conversation. It's not meant to discourage you, but to impress upon you the necessity of building an audience so your book will have wider influence than the national average. But before we dive into this topic, let's share where we've made progress, Dave. Dave, you go first. Where have you made progress? So this progress report really is a, is a progress report over time that maybe in the last couple of weeks, there's been some solidifying in my head. So, so one of the questions I keep asking myself is I've done so much writing through the years. I've published a book traditionally with HarperCollins. I've published a book from my business on messaging strategy, and I've done one on fly fishing. So I think one of the questions I've been asking myself, what are some personal projects that I wanna do for writing for me? Like, what, what do I wanna write about? And I put together a proposal and sent it to a publisher, somebody I knew, an editor, and it was promptly rejected. But it was kind of engine run on from what I had written on before with Death by Suburb. And I realized I didn't even have the energy for it. And the publisher said, hey, you have no platform, which is relevant to our conversation today. I did have a platform, right? I did. That's why I got published with HarperCollins originally with Death by Suburb, but no longer, right? That's been, that's been a few years, right? It's been 16, 17 years. And they said it was, we don't, we don't publish memoirs. And it wasn't a memoir that I had sent them. I realized that the, the publishing house didn't even understand what it was. It was memoir as a writing style, right? So I used memoir to get at these topics of spirituality. So, but I, they sent that back to me and I thought, yeah, they're probably right. And I don't even want to write this book. And even though I spent quite a bit of time putting together the chapter and, and the proposal, I realized I even hate this topic now. I don't even want to write on it. So it was good. So I, I wasn't motivated to send it to another publisher. And I just thought, or even do it myself, right? I could publish this myself without, no, I'm done. So the progress in my thinking, I think, is putting a period to that end of my life, realizing I'll never do a book on spirituality again, because I'm just not interested in it. And the second thing is, I think I really want to focus on writing on the outdoor life. I've spent my life in the outdoors and have had some harrowing experiences, a lot of funny experiences. And so I'm trying to 
think through what that would be. Would it be a book on short stories? I'm talking with my partner, Steve Mathewson, about that, who wrote, we wrote the fly fishing book. So a lot of good stuff. And it's just, so the progress is realizing what I don't want to do and, and, and some inkling of what I want to do next. So that's all good. So what is your why then for what, why you want to write, write this book? Have you grappled with that at all? We always tell authors to grapple with that question. You had to ask that, didn't you? I don't, maybe you're still grappling with it. That's all right. I think I want to wrestle with it because it's been the great joy of my life has been my life in the outdoors. I mean, we were out hunting in North Dakota and my dad, we chased up a wolf in North Dakota and we weren't hunting for wolves. We didn't shoot at wolves, but we chased up a wolf. That was a really amazing experience. But the why I think is related to wanting to tell the stories of something that's been so important to me, right? Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't mean that I have to sell, I don't even have to sell 100 copies. I realize I'm not motivated by money at this point, but the why really has to do is telling, what has, telling the stories of what have been so important to me. My progress always has to do with mental shifts, not always, but most of them, because I tend to get very overwhelmed, get very stressed out, see the world a little bit more negatively, less, more pessimistically, less optimistically. <laughs> Everything feels hard and for whatever reason, it's just how I'm created. And so every year about this time, we have to get our leaves out. It's like our last hurrah to get the leaves to the, to the street in the Midwest. They come by and collect all your leaves because there are just so many. And we have this tree in our backyard that is a late bloomer and it is late to lose its leaf and it's it leaves and it's huge. It's the biggest tree on the block. It's huge. And so we always wait until the very end of November or as late as we can before we head out to Colorado for Thanksgiving. And it just, it's so much work and I always dread it. But this year I initiated, I said, let's do this on Sunday. I came out, I'm like, what's our plan? I want to have a plan. I, I picked out a podcast to try to make it as enjoyable as possible. And I just did it. And it didn't seem nearly as difficult or onerous. It was just, we got it done in a couple hours and it's done and it feels great. So I really, the progress is, I think the success in changing my mental shift towards difficult things. And it's not just progress, that's an accomplishment. Like that's even like a concrete, I mean, to, that is a huge project. So good for you. Yeah. It's only taken me out. I've been married 25 years, been in this house for about 23. It's only taken 23 years. <laughs> That's funny. Well, All hey, right. it's always time to grow at some point, right? It's always time to grow. All right, Dave. Well, I'm really excited about this topic. You've already alluded a bit to what we're going to be talking about. Of course, the introduction talked about what we were going to be talking about. And this really has to do with the cost of publishing, which this isn't really discussed very much. And we're going to talk a little bit about the soft cost, but mostly about the hard cost of publishing. And let's start out by defining the word publish and how we define it here at Journey 66. And the word publishing simply means to make public. It doesn't mean only that you publish with a traditional publisher or get reviews and notable periodicals, even though that's what people think of, and that's what they think the holy grail of publishing is. It is not necessarily that. But today we're going to be talking about more traditional publishing and getting your word out into the world in a widespread sort of way. Dave, anything you'd add to that? 
No, I think it's going to be very productive. It'll help me actually think through even more crisply some of the thoughts I have about what I want to write about next or publish about next. Because the truth is, even if you publish with a traditional publisher, there are costs involved if you want to make your words public. And I think that that's the great mystery to people is that you have to actually invest money and time, even if you get partnered or picked up by a traditional publisher. So Dave, there are hard costs, which we're going to talk about, but there are also some soft costs. And I know you having written a book, you know what some of those soft costs are. So can you tell us what some of them are? So when I was writing Death by Suburb, I had three kids at the time. It was before we had Jalen, our fourth, and I was doing my strategic marketing business. As you know, Melissa, you were working with me then. And so I was really busy during the day. So when I finally landed a contract with HarperCollins, which I was grateful for, they made me rewrite the book uh, several times before I, no, the proposal, the chapters, right? I think I submitted three chapters and they made me rewrite them like two or three. It was, wasn't three times. It was two times before they even gave me the contract because they wanted to see if I could do it. So I passed all those milestones and But then when I wrote the book, the hardcore writing was in 2004. And I wrote every month, I wrote every month, I I produced a chapter and I needed to do that to, to complete the book. My family to this day does not look back on that time. And my kids were really young, right? But nor does my wife look back on that time and go, boy, those are really the best days of our life. They were not for the family. Not just because I was busy with my day job and also writing in the evenings. I wrote from really nine o'clock, somewhere between 11 and 12. I tried to write about three hours, four to five times a week. And I was, in addition to the time, so I put the kids to bed or help my wife put the kids to bed, but then I was grumpy. (laughs) So when you talk about the soft costs of publishing, you do have to ask yourself, do I really want to do this? Because there's writing and doing some writing for yourself and maybe for your nonprofit newsletter and for different things. But if you want to make public your words, there's some soft cost to that. And that is time and also sacrifice away from family. And in a sense, it's kind of like fly fishing. Fly fishing is one of those sports you really can't do with your family, right? It's kind of a solo act. So if you're on a family vacation, in fact, we used to do podcasts about this with my fly fishing podcast, have a family vacation and do not take your fly rod because the moment you do that, you're spending time by yourself. Now, yes, you, one of your children might take up fly fishing and yeah, there might be some happy family thing, but for the most part, it's not. The same is true with writing. It's a solo act. You need time to think and that's time away from your family. So that's a really important cost to know up front that if you make that decision that somehow publishing a book is what you want, that means that you're going to, there's things you'll have to give up. And most writers who are working on books that take a little bit more time are living life and they have jobs and they have family. Most people are not professional writers where it is their sole job to write a book, right? And so As we say all the time, you're fitting the writing into the seams of your life and your seams are already so slim, right? I think about my days and how sometimes I have to choose between working out and which is important to me or getting work done because I have more on my plate or whatever it is. And so 
you have to make those decisions when you're writing a book and fitting it into the seams of your life. You may have to give up working out. You may have to give up time with your friends. You may have to give up other leisurely activities that bring you joy. You may have to sacrifice sleep, right? You were going to bed later and probably you weren't yeah. able to turn off your brain when you were totally. <laughs> done, done writing at midnight, right? It kept on going. And so it, it's a sacrifice and that's costly, right? And so you have to really grapple with that as you enter into the writing life to publish specifically a book, I think is what we're talking about today, though we're going to talk about magazine writing also in some respects. So our second point is, is that you need to understand by and large that you will not get rich becoming a published writer. And Dave, you and I have both been paid for our writing. You've been paid for book writing and also magazine writing. I've been paid for magazine writing. And the, the margin on that is just not very large. You just don't make a lot of money. How about you tell that really great story about your first article that you submitted? So when I decided I wanted to start writing, I took classes. I had a connection into a publication. And so I pitched them on an article that I wrote and they promptly rejected it, right? And they didn't say, hey, Dave, you really have talent. We really think you're great. And there was none of that. It was just, nah, not a good fit. And they did respond, which was nice. But over time, I kept pinging them. I said, listen, I want a shot at something. And this was back in the day when there were magazines. And I just want to say this. One of the great, the things that make me feel, make me want to pine for the old days is that when there were a lot of magazines, it created this world for a lot of writers to develop. And so New York was a hotbed of publishing and there were all these magazines. So you could start out and make a living out of college being a freelance writer. And you would get, you know, you might get twenty, thirty thousand dollars for a an extended article, right? So you could you could make a living, do three, four of those a year and you can make a, you could make a living, right? And there's and so there was a whole culture of developing writers. But when magazines went away in the early 2000s, now there's still magazines, but they're just not the same. It just changed everything. So I got paid for, I finally got a book review. I got paid for that. It was $75, I think. And when you think about all the time I put on that, in fact, I actually even worked on that. I think it was that on my honeymoon. I worked on one project on my honeymoon, which my wife never will forgive me. Actually, she's forgive me. She just mocks me for being, you know, who I am. But the point here is, is that you're going to sacrifice and there's just no money in it and there's no money in it. And lastly, there's no money in it. So <laughs> if you have any notion that somehow this writing is going to turn into some sort of huge revenue stream, you would be better to start a different kind of side hustle. You just should. And don't be misled. And we can talk about this a little bit later about people who are in business that have coaching and consulting and how the book fits into that. But I want to hear your story of your work with writing for the Flea Style magazine. Flea Market Style magazine. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same thing. I really had this glamorized view of writing for a magazine, right? So I'm a little bit younger than you, not much younger. And I grew up in an era where magazines were everything, it was pre-digital world. And you do have this kind of wonderful view of you know, sitting down and opening up a magazine and paging through eight to 10 page spread and, and the words that came to life and the captions and all of it, at least in decorating magazines. And so 
I had, I wanted to write for a shelter magazine. And so I had a connection with an editor and I first said, Hey, let me write an article for free. I've told this story before. And she gave me a chance. And so I wrote the article. She liked my writing well enough that I started regularly contributing to the magazine. And at the most, I was probably contributing about four articles a quarter. And I was calculating it based on what I got paid. I got paid $400 per an article. And the articles were approximately like 3,000 words, maybe a little bit less, more, depending on how many captions each article had. And that translated about 13 cents a word, which is not much at all. And I think about the time that I spent on those articles. If you calculate it by time, I probably spent, by the time I did the interview, I structured it, I did my first draft, I did the captions, and I went back and revised. I mean, I probably spent about eight hours, eight to 10 hours per an article, which just isn't very much money, right? That's like $40 an article, $40 an hour. So again, I did it because I loved, I, I loved flea market style and it was something I was passionate about and I, and I enjoy writing. So it was more of a passion project than a money making. But if you're under any sort of preconception that you will make money at writing, very few writers do. Of course, they're like the David Brookses of the world, right? For who write in exactly. big magazines and they make lots of money, but most people won't. But let's talk about books because books, they are similarly very difficult to make money at, right? Whether you're traditionally published or self-published. Again, don't expect to make lots of money from your writing. Let's break it down, Dave. And I'll, I'll start out. The average traditionally published nonfiction book sells about 250 to 300 copies in the first year. So this is on average, but the goal is to sell a thousand copies in the first three months. And we're hearing from authors that they want you to sell 5,000 within the first year, right? So you'll have some momentum by the time three months comes around, you want to have sold a thousand copies so that your name is getting out there. The book is being referred and it, and it keeps on growing over the cycle of, of the book's life. But say you sell 1,000 copies in the first three months and you're selling your book for $24.99, about $25. $25. That's about $25,000. But with the traditionally published book, you keep a pretty small percentage of that, right? I think, Dave, you keep about $3 a book. So if you think about it, and a paperback is about $1, $1 book. So if you do the math, That's right. $3 a book, you're making about $3,000. It's not that much money, right? When you break it down. So I, I, when I published Death by Suburb, I'll tell you, I got a $25,000 advance. Those advances do not exist anymore, right? For first, 25000 or 2500 25000 oh, Wow, that's incredible. That's a big advance. And, and I sold, I think, around 30,000 copies. So $3. And so if you look at, it's not quite $3 a book. I sold about 7,500 hardback. And, I, and the rest were at a dollar. So I, like just recently, I, get, I still get royalties every six months and selling very few copies now because it's been so long, maybe 100, 150 copies a year. So that's what I basically get a year now is 100 or $150 a year, right? And it's not even that much now. I think it might be even a little bit less than that. But for years, it sold. First two, three years, it sold well. Fourth, fifth, it starts to tail off. So if you're a first-time author, one, those things don't even exist anymore. In fact, we have clients uh, that we've worked with at Journey 66 who have 
publishers have have a book with a major publisher and they got no advance right zero advance everything is on the come right everything is on the what people purchase and so again somehow you think that that the revenue side of this is worthy of your time you really need to reevaluate why you're writing because it's just not that much money now let me just double clutch here for a second if you're kim kardashian this is what publishers love, right? We're gonna talk about what it costs to build a platform. What publishers really like are people who already have a platform because they don't even have to worry about that. They'll just put slap Kim Kardashian's name on a book, make it about design or something, whatever she wants to talk about. And, and that book will sell enough to where she might have a million dollar advance or a $10 million advance, right? Because she already has an audience. So the, the world is, is kind of shifted. So now you have to bring a platform to a publisher or else as a, a traditional publisher just is not interested in you. So let's break down the cost for a self-published author since we kind of broke down the traditional publishing amounts that you keep on average. And self-published authors keep about 50 to 60% of sales, at least on Amazon, right? They're there are other places that you can self-publish, but the average U.S. book now sells less than 200 copies per year and less than 1,000 copies over a lifetime. Just wrap your mind around that. So if you're thinking of self we're not saying, we don't want to be negative. We just want to be realistic. And there are going to be some yeah. of you who are outliers and you're going to sell more than that, but be realistic between 200 and 1,000 copies. That's just not that many, right? So say you sell on the high side and you sell that 1,000 copies at about $25 and you pocket around 50%, that's $12,500 over the lifetime of your book because it's 1,000 copies over its lifetime. That's not even in the first year. It's over the lifetime of the book. So again, you will be seeing that 12,500 over probably a few year period, right? And it's going to come in as a trickle, maybe, maybe a big chunk at first, but then it will probably slow down. So of course, then you add in the costs of self-publishing. So if you are self-publishing, then there are all these costs that add up. And we've done podcasts on this before, and we may do some future podcasts on this. But then you subtract that from your profit, and you have even less of a profit. <laughs> so this key thing We're to understand- We're kind of Debbie Downer here, aren't we? Right. But I think people need to be aware of this, right? I, I, we all have these starry-eyed notions, right? And so the, the key is just really understand there's no scenario in which- you make money writing a book unless you are a Kim Kardashian or like in my field on Instagram, there's a gal who has 150,000 followers and we interviewed her, Natalie Kepier from Home Echo P and she got a book deal. She's not a writer, but she got a book deal. She'll probably sell quite a few and make some money. So, but the point of all this is that you can con take control of your book sales by building your platform and building it now. Don't wait to build your platform. Most people think way too, take way too long to build their platform. And it's something you need to be doing now. Focus on it now. If you want to develop a writing life, you have to develop a writing audience. And, and that it might feel a little onerous. And we're trying to make it a little bit more simple with this podcast just to help explain it. And then some of our other podcasts in which we give more specifics. But just want to encourage you that there's a lot of people who do this well. There's a lot of people who realize, in fact, I have talked to several authors recently who have 
published traditionally, but have given up on that because they just don't like the long process with the publisher. They don't like all the rights that they have to give up. And since they've already published a few, they have an audience. So once you have an audience, you don't even need a traditional publisher again, unless you need to have that cocktail conversation. <laughs> oh my God, I published with HarperCollins. If you need that in your life, you know, is that if that's important to you, but you won't need it to sell more books. So let's talk about why you need a platform. We obviously to sell more books. But let's start out by saying that no matter how you decide to publish your book, you must have an audience to sell to. How are you going to sell a book if nobody knows who you are, or knows what things you're passionate about, or is connected to you in any way? You have to have an audience. Otherwise, it just goes out into this void. So you need a platform, which is another word for audience. And this isn't just a self-publishing problem. It's also a traditional publishing problem. Most traditional publishers won't take on new authors unless they have an audience to sell to. In fact, it's so much about your audience that they often look at that with the same weight as what your book idea is, if not more. Just as a matter of priority, that publishers look at your platform first and your idea second. That's why this woman who was you talked about in vintage who could she has 150,000 followers and then suddenly a book publisher contacts her this that's kind of how it works today it's not you have an idea and then you sell the idea it's you first have a platform and then you have an idea for a book it's to me it's all wrong you had you were consulting me i i deal in the world of ideas but it's just the way it is. So when we talk about platform, Dave, let's give our audience an idea of what a platform is or what it looks like to engage an audience. Because it's not just having a social media platform, right? So let's give our audience some ideas of what having a platform or an audience looks like. A good example would be when I did my fly fishing podcast. So we built up our podcast to, to 10,000 subscribers. And so we also captured about almost 2,000 email addresses. So when people hit the website, we captured their data through offering something free. Like I think we offered a free guide to uh, safe wading, like wading the rivers so that you don't drown, right? And so we captured their data. So we had an audience. We had 10,000 people. We, had, we published an episode every week. And then we had these emails. We, we released an email every week alerting people to the new episode and to the new article we did. So when, we, when you say, what is a platform? A platform is 10,000 subscribers that receive fresh content every week, a growing email list. So if you are someone, let's say you have a blog, let's say you are the executive director of a nonprofit and you have an email list, of let's say 5,000 or more people, and you are repeatedly sending them fresh content, you have good open rates, good click-through rates, that's a platform, right? So 5,000 on an email list, that's pretty good. My guess is some smaller publishers would be interested in somebody who, is, who has a real active email list. So that would be an example of a platform. Another would be Let's say that you are a business person and you have a history 
of speaking to larger audiences, let's say conference. Maybe you have that as one of your shticks, right? You're a conference speaker and people want you, you do Zoom conferences, you do live conferences. And we have actually somebody who's part of Road Trippers, which is our weekly community. And she speaks regularly and she captures somewhere between 25 to 50 email addresses at every engagement. So she's building her platform. She speaks and uses that to capture the email address so that she can send out a weekly or bi-monthly newsletter. So this is in addition to her working on the project of her book. So she's building her audience. She's speaking, capturing email addresses, doing the newsletter while she's also working on her books. That's a lot, especially because she has her own business as well. That's a great example. And I will mention that building an audience is a hybrid type of activity, right? You don't just speak, you speak like this road tripper does. And then she sends out a newsletter and she means she also has a blog where she collects data when maybe people find her through search or some other maybe referral. And she collects that data by giving them something free, right? So it's not just one way you, you focus typically on one one way, but it's usually, it's usually many. For instance, this author, she also is active on social media. So she has an Instagram account and a Facebook account where she engages people on the topic of her book. And that's another way to create energy among your audience. So again, it, you, you want to find focus. So if you're going to develop like you, you, Dave, you developed this podcast. You also did, you also did social media, but that's not how you grew your audience, right? So no, so. that's absolutely right. And our, our, my audience or our audience, cause it was a partner and I, they were all on Facebook, right? They were older fly fisher men, mostly in the later years when we did the podcast, we had more fly fisher, fly fisher women, which was awesome. But, and so we didn't do a ton of stuff, but the younger fly fishers are now all on, on Instagram, right? So but we built our following through Facebook, but ultimately I didn't care how many Facebook followers I had. I only cared about two metrics, how many subscribers to the podcast, like real unique subscribers, and how many email addresses that we were capturing. So I simplified my platform building into two metrics, into two numbers. So just to, to wrap up what we've been saying in this segment is, if you don't have an audience, you need to start investing in building an audience today. If you're going to be writing on your book today, you also need to be investing in building your audience. I mean, maybe it's as simple as starting out just writing a Facebook post every few days a week. I don't know what it is going to be for you. You've got to determine what that is. And maybe the first step is actually just determining where you're going to focus your energy. Where is your audience at and how are you going to reach them? but you need to start today. Don't wait until the book proposal's done because that needs to be in your book proposal. You have to have real numbers, not fake numbers. They can sniff fake numbers, right? So you have to have real numbers going into that book proposal. So it, it's, it's something that you need to consider. It's something that take takes time. And creating an audience, building a platform is something that takes money. And that's what we're going to get into in this next point. And that is the costs of building a platform. And you discussed this in a recent tipster, Dave, and I loved it. And I, that's why I wanted to talk about it in this podcast. But what were the costs associated with building your platform? 
specifically your podcast platform. And then I'll talk about the costs of building my Instagram platform. But you go first. We were publishing a podcast. So if you're going to do that, you have to have microphones, you have to have audio editing software, unless you outsource it. And I just learned audio edition. So one of the expenses with audio editing software, and that was, that's about 20 bucks a month. You can get it cheaper. There's other, other softwares out there. And I think there might be even some free stuff with Apple. And so it doesn't matter, right? You just have to be able to edit your podcasts, have an intro, have an outro, edit the ahs and the mistakes. So you have to have editing audio software. So that's 20 bucks a month. So then I got a couple mics. So that we had, there was two of us and that was about $300, probably a little bit less than that. But we, we decided we needed better quality mics. And there's this thinking that in, in podcasting that it's, you can't fix a bad recording with good editing. You just can't, you have to have a good recording. So that's how we decided let's get some really good mics. So we did that. That was 300 bucks. There's a monthly fee to host the files because you have to have your podcast hosted and that we did it ours with Podbean. It's about $9 a month if you pay that annually. So over, what is it? A hundred and something a year. If you pay that annually, there's a website hosting fee. We decided that we would have a website. So we, I think now with GoDaddy, it's kind of expensive. It's like $34.99 a month, $34.99. and So that's something. If you're going to have a website, you're going to have to have website hosting. This is not designing and implementing it. It's just a hosting fee. And then we would produce, we produced one podcast and one article a week. So that was a lot of content, but there was two of us, right? And we would batch record uh, once a month, but we needed images for the articles because we had a standard image that we had designed. I'll talk about that in a little bit for the podcast, but then we had, so sometimes we would use images from our fly fishing trips so to go along with the article, but we paid uh, iStock, I think maybe a hundred bucks a year total. So we didn't use iStock, but we felt like our images on the website, our articles needed images. So that's why we used iStock. Okay. So that's another hundred bucks. So then we used email marketing software. So we used drip. So that's about 20 bucks a month plus or minus. We needed a graphic designer because we wanted to do a really cool logo. We didn't want to have pictures of Steve and me. So we did a caricature of him, of him and me. And so we had this, she did this quirky logo. I think we spent around two grand on that. So again, there's no money that's coming in to cover those costs. These costs are just going out. But there were two of us to, to spread those costs out, right? So, and, and there's other costs too. You have this or that, but Steve and I were really committed to doing everything ourselves. The only thing we outsourced was the design, right? So I even built the website myself. So we try to keep our costs low, but you can see there's still a monthly, you know, there might be a thousand to $1,500 a year just in regular costs. And so you have to decide whether it's, you know, as you think about your values and where you want to go, that's why you have to have goals. For us, we wanted to grow the podcast because we felt that was a great platform for when we wanted to do a book. Us, just taking a motivation, it wasn't just, we, we didn't do any of this to make money. We did this in part because we love working together and we're best friends, right? We thought, hey, what could we do together? And we live about an hour apart. The second thing was we thought, hey, let's do a book together because we have an audience. We have 10,000 subscribers. Why don't we do a book? 
So that's how our cost structure kind of came to be. I love that you're talking about how it was something that meant something to you. And I think that that's what I was getting at early on. Like you got to identify why it is you're going to be doing this if it's not to make a lot of money. And sometimes it's simply because you're passionate about something, right? And so maybe you only reach a couple thousand people with your idea, but that could be worth it. Maybe it's only a few hundred people, right? If you only sell 200 to 300 books. But if you're passionate about it and it means something to you, then for one thing, it's not going to feel as hard or as much like work because you're enveloped in something that you really love. And it's also something that, you know, will drive you every time you go to write, right? So, or build that platform, which is the case for me. Also, I started this vintage focused Instagram account. I had my clear, my goals were I wanted to be published in a magazine so that I could get my foot in a door to then actually have my words published. When I mean published in a magazine, I wanted my home to be published in a magazine and I wanted to make connections with editors. So then I could start writing for magazines because ultimately I thought, you know, if I'm going to do some side writing, that would be really fun for me. And so that's how I started out. And in, in the process, I also started selling on the side as a jobby, a hobby, mostly selling vintage at a brick and mortar. And so became a great way to promote my, my jobby, my vintage little business. So I'll tell you how I built my account from zero to 28,000, what I spent in order to do that. And so over the course of seven years, I posted five times a week on average. Hmm. Sometimes I posted seven times a week. Sometimes I did a little bit less, but I'm looking at it now and it's tapered down to probably about five times a week. That's a lot of time. It takes probably about 30 minutes or so to an hour to take a real quality picture, write a thoughtful post, and then you post it. And then if you have a post that gets comments, then you're engaged for the next hour or two responding to comments and comments, because that's how you grow social media is by responding to comments. And sometimes I get 150 to 200 comments and I don't respond to all of them, but I try to respond to a lot of them. And that takes time. So that's the cost of time, right? That you, and what does that calculate out to monetarily? I'm not sure, but it is time. So like I, I'll say, I probably spend at least one hour a day devoted to social media, whether it's creating an image, styling an image, writing, responding to posts, posting something on stories, creating a video, whatever it is, it averages probably about an hour a day. Some days it's more. All right. But here's what I actually spent monetarily because IG is image driven. I learned early on that it was really important that I took quality pictures. And so my camera phone back in the day was not good created really blurry, fuzzy pictures. And I had some professional shots done by a friend, which she didn't charge me for. And I liked the quality of those so much better that I started to use my camera, which was just okay. And I eventually upgraded. So I got a good camera for about $3,000. And then I got a couple of really good lenses for another couple thousand dollars. So that's $5,000 right there, just on equipment to make my images better on Instagram, because that's who I'm trying to that's my audience. That's who I want to connect with people who care about, about interiors, about vintage, vintage living. I also took some styling classes over a period of two years, which probably ended up being close to $1,000. I hosted giveaways over the years. So I would give away items from my vintage, personal vintage collection or items that I had in my store. So over the years, that probably added up to about a thousand. The reason why I did that was because it was a way to spread my name. People would put other people's name in their comment to get be entered more than once. And so it was just a way to expand my reach. 
And then I, in order to network, which is how you grow a social media platform, I flew to events and that ended up being another thousand or so dollars by the time I calculate flights and and driving. It just all adds up. So that's almost $10,000. And that, like you said, Dave, that's all going out. I'm sure there are other costs as well that I'm not even calculating, but it takes money to grow a platform and you could probably do it cheaper. But if you're really invested in building a platform, there are probably going to be some costs. I think we should pause here for a second and say, if you're in financial crisis and you're looking for ways to make money, this is not it. It would be better for you to get a part-time job at Chipotle. And so this if you're really struggling financially and you're using writing as some sort of way to, to get on top of that, I would, I would say that this is probably not it, right? And this is really for those who want to write and also want to publish and have a vision for probably self-publishing maybe initially and also have a modicum of resources to do that. Otherwise, it would be better for you to invest in some other, some sort of side hustle that can generate the kind of revenue that you need. I feel like we're being brutally honest today, Dave, but I, I think that people need to hear this. So I hope that people reach out to us after this podcast and let us know their thoughts and their thinking after hearing this. One last thing about this point, and I want to really emphasize this. You grew your platform from zero to 28,000 followers over how long was it? Over a seven-year seven. period. I think I'm coming up on eight, actually, if I calculate it. That's a long time. Yeah. It took us four and a half years to get to 10,000 subscribers. And that was back when podcasts weren't as ubiquitous as, and we were like the number four, fourth largest, I think, fly fishing podcast. There weren't that many that were bigger than we were, but now it's even harder. So I, I just think that this is an important point and it's not saying you shouldn't do this. I think everyone should do this. I love this, right? But I do think it does take time to build a platform. That's why the urgency is to, you know, I think there was that one fun line, when, when do you need a platform? And the question always, and the answer always is about seven years before you, before you publish your book, right? So. It's kind of a joke, not really, but you always need it way before you think you need it. And, and so the urgency, I think, is to start now. Start now, start now, start now. I think that that is what we want you to take away from this. All right. So Dave, what can a platform do to help you sell your book? We've talked about this already in past episodes and in, in our blog, on our blog, but can you tell us again or in a little bit more detail? how your platform helped you specifically sell your fly fishing book? So what we did with our, our podcast is that we would insert the promotion of the book like an ad. We often did it at the end of the podcast. Like, by the way, we published this book called The Fly Fisher's Book of Lists, Life is Short, Catch More Fish. So that was one way we did it. We also, in recent years, We'd put at the end of a podcast, we'd say, we're going to take out one of, we're going we're to give you one of the chapters in our book. And so we would read the chapter. And because these are not even chapters, they're not even three or 400 words. They're usually five things 
to prevent yourself from drowning while on the river, or five things you need to know about spring creeks and freestone rivers and tailwaters or something, whatever. It was just kind of fun. It was just a bunch of lists. So we would read that and then we would have, we would kibitz about that. Like, yeah, you remember that? And we'd have some fun anecdote that wasn't in the book, but then we would add that to it. So it, it became extra content. So those podcasts live on, right? And so once you publish one of those, people who come to your podcast later hear that. So even to this day, we don't publish regularly anymore on the podcast. We still, you know, we get, I probably sell five to 10 books every month, right? That people hear, hear it on the podcast and they, they hit Amazon and they, and they pick up the book. So, and then we put it on the, on the website, right? And we promote it through the email list. We did some giveaways, I think. We even spoke at a, a Trout Unlimited chapter and did some giveaways. So once you have an email list, it's a great way to promote the book. Make sure it's visible on the website. So there's just these different ways that, that enable you. Once you have a platform, there's just different ways to, to sell the book. So I'll talk a little bit about how some of my friends who have published books on Instagram use social media to promote their books. And the one really wonderful thing about social media being your main platform is that it's social. So it's a perfect way to kind of have this exponential reach because one person speaks about it to their audience and it's not the same as this other person's audience. And so suddenly it starts to kind of have all these tentacles to that spread out. So often you would send books to key influencers in your space. And I've seen people do this and then they take pictures of them. They talk about it in, in their posts. They have book giveaways. They partner with other authors. They do live events on Instagram, which is a really wonderful thing about social media is now you can host all these live events without having to do webinars, right? And it just kind of pops up at the top of your, of your feed. So there are lots of ways on social media to talk about your book. And then of course you put the link in your in your profile and link to to the Amazon page or wherever it's being sold. So it, it is a wonderful way to promote your book if you have a social media presence, but it's not the only way. And I would say like Dave, you have to have a combination of strategies and that's what if you hire a publicist, they'll help you with. They'll help you with the the multitude of strategies, but you figured it out on your own, you know, figuring out different ways to, to sell it. So how many books did you end up selling, Dave? In the post on Friday in Tipster, I said about a couple thousand. I think it was closer probably to 1,500 copies. Mm -hmm. So if you feel like, you know, the average book sold is, is 300 copies, we, what, quadrupled, quadrupled that? It. And, you know, again, we, since we self-published it, instead of getting 15% of the total price, we received, I, th I think it's close to 50% with Amazon. You can play around with the pricing when you actually set up, you're getting the book published with that, where they have a little interface and you can put different prices in and you can, but I think we're at right, we're pretty close to about 45 or 50%. So the book sells for $14.99, I think. So eight bucks. That's a lot better than 15%. And by the way, when traditional publishers say 15%, it's 15% of net. So if you have a book that retails for $24.99, let's say $25, but Amazon sells it for $18.50, 
you make only 15% off the net price. You don't make it off the full price and very few books are sold at the full price. So it's even less than what you think. So I love self-publishing. I hope to self-publish several books in the future. And I realize I don't even care about traditional publishing or I love the self-publishing process. I love the control it gives me. We've talked about that before. So I see that in my future. All right. So basically you're saying again, you didn't get rich from writing a book. (laughs) I did not. I didn't get that cabin out in Montana. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. So if you're not going to get rich writing a book, then why write, Dave? Can you talk a little bit about that? I do think that's the question we all have to ask ourselves. So why, why, are, why are we writing? And there's also those of us that are just want to write to get things out, either for ourselves, which is completely legitimate. You've gone through some suffering in your life. You've got, you maybe grew, grew up in an alcoholic family. There's things you want to work through. And writing is just a really wonderful way to do that, right? And you have no intentions of making any of that public. That is wonderful. Then there are those who say, I want to write for my family. Like my mom has kind of done that, right? So there's some, she did a cookbook and she got it published. At the end of the day, she sold it to a couple of bookstores. She had my dad go in his car with a bag, bunch of books, trying to get, you know, bookstores to put it on their shelves. But at the end of the day, she did that as a legacy thing for her family. So that's just another audience. But then there's the some of the rest of us that we want to make public our work and we want to do it to as many people as as will read the book and so if you ask why do you write for me i write because it's just what i feel called to do i'm going to write i've always been a writer right and not always probably since my mid-20s and so i'm going to continue to write into old age it doesn't mean people will want to read it but i'm going to write so I I think you write for me. I write because I must. What about you? Yeah, I think it has to do with that. I think I I like learning. I like hearing people's stories. So I like telling people's stories. I like connecting with people who share similar human experiences. And I think that that's why I write because it becomes this this gateway to doing that. And so that's motivation enough for me to keep writing, even though knowing that I won't make a ton of money doing it throughout the course of my life. And I think that's how we want to close out this episode. If you're going to add up all the costs that it takes to build a platform, and if you're self-publishing to take on the costs of self-publishing, and then also promoting the book once it's out in the world, is it worth it to you? And what are those maybe intangible things that make it worth it to you? Spend some time grappling with that and what your expectations are, really, truly, because, again, we don't want to dishearten you, but you probably will make less than you think you're going to make, but you could still have a really joyful, wonderful, fulfilling, fruitful experience putting your words out into the world, making your words public. So spend some time what asking, what do you hope to get from writing this book? Why write? Like Dave and I have, have asked ourselves today, asked each other today. I think ultimately... We write to influence others, right? If you're, if you're into storytelling, you're writing to shape other people's worlds. And that's just a wonderful, wonderful calling. And I do think that for me, writing is a calling, right? I write because I must, but I write to influence others. I don't write to convert people or to 
But I, if I can make someone laugh, that makes me happy, right? If I can make somebody, if I can move somebody emotionally with my writing, if I can make somebody think differently with my writing, that's all, that's why I write. And that is a great note to end on. I love that, Dave. Let's turn to our words of the episode and I will go first this week. And my word is Aegis, which I'm so glad I'm talking about today because I always mispronounced it. It's in Greek mythology all the time. It's A-E-G-I-S. And I think I thought it was Aegis or Aegis. And it's Aegis, Aegis. <laughs> and so I, I don't know why I pronounced it wrong. I think my friend always talks about when you're a reader, you don't really hear the word. And so you you phonetically put it together. So that's what I'm going to say is my problem. So like I said, it's from classical mythology. It's the shield or breastplate of Zeus or Athena bearing at its center the head of the Gorgon. And so it's become more metaphorically to mean protection, support, or even further removed sponsorship auspices. So like a debate under the age. Oops, yeah, I'm going to say it wrong. It's going to, I have to retrain, retrain myself. A debate under the aegis of the League of Women Voters. So that's good. So here's a sentence Children under the aegis of their parents are able to explore and fail in safety. So aegis is my word. And I'm so glad I know how to pronounce it so I don't sound stupid. I'm always glad when you correct my mispronunciation because I do it all the time. <laughs> I love that you use this word. I have always pronounced that incorrectly as well. The Aegis. But Aegis, yeah, it makes complete sense that it's Aegis. Aegis. All right, what's your word of the episode, Dave? So I almost hesitate to use my word because it's a, it's a provocative word. It's concupiscence. Concupiscence. Ooh, that's, a, that's a mouthful. <laughs> it is. It's concupiscence. And it's, to say it, Bluntly, it's strong sexual desire or lust. It's a Latin word. And in Confessions of St. Augustine, St. Augustine was this bishop, the Bishop of Hippo, in between the 4th and 5th centuries. I think he died in 430 AD, so AD, so after, or after the Common Era, I think it is, I think is what we would say now. But he lived around the 4th and 5th century, and so he wrote about his struggles with lust, so concupiscence. So the reason I, it came up in a, I think in one of the books I was reading, it may have been a Cormac McCarthy book, and I came and I thought, I didn't fully understand what it meant, because when I think of this word, I think of Cupid, you know, that little angel with the arrow and the heart, and I had, I thought it had to do with, with love, not so much strong sexual desire and lust or and or lust. So it had a little more nuanced meaning for me. So that's my word, concupiscence. If you look at concu, it, it's the same Latin root probably as concubine, which does have to do with sexuality. So there's probably something in the huh. concu. <laughs> I would like to do some more research on that. But yeah. Yeah, the etymology of concu. Yeah. yeah. How do you say it again? Con concupiscence? Yeah, concupiscence. concupiscence. Yeah, concupiscence. That is a mouthful. All right. Well, another great episode. I hope that you guys aren't discouraged, but just have a real sense of what it's going to take to move forward to publish your writing. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. Mm -hmm.